Hi, this is Craig Marshall, and before we start today's episode, I just want to remind you about the Summer Institute that's coming up this June in San Diego. In addition to some great speakers, it's also a chance to interact with the IBCD family and a bunch of other people who are interested in one another care. I'm always amazed how people who come to the conference walk away saying they were encouraged, they're ready to get back at it, and they feel better equipped to care for the people in their churches and ministries. We'd love to see you there, and I'd love to get a chance to meet you and to talk with you. The pre-conference features Chris Moles on his book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, and the topic of the main conference is addiction. This conference is going to explore both the physical and spiritual components of addiction and how to navigate them carefully as Christians. Our keynote speakers are Mark Shaw, Ed Welts, Charles Hodges, and Jim Neuheiser, and there's a great lineup of workshops. To learn more, just go to ibcd.org events, and all the information about registration is there. Regular rates are ending soon on May 2nd, so now's a great time to register. I'm excited to have Elise Fitzpatrick here with me again, and we're going to be talking through her book, Home, How Heaven and the New Earth Satisfy Our Deepest Longings. Elise is a longtime friend of IBCD and a prolific author and speaker on topics all about the Christian life, and especially as it's related to understanding the gospel and its implications for our lives as believers. So Elise, great to have you with us. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Elise, as I was reading through your book, Home, it had a different feel to me than some of your other writings. Um, Do you find that to be the case? And if so, why would that be? Yes, I think that was the case. This, um, This book really came out of a place of deep sorrow in my own life and, uh, and, a, and a desperation to find the love of God in Christ in my future. Um, whereas perhaps some of my other books would be more didactic, more really focused on uh, teaching principles and that sort of thing. And I, I think I do that in this book, but it came, um, it, it came out of a different place in my own life. And then also because we're talking about something we, none of us have actually seen the new heavens and the new earth. I felt like I was being pushed to try to be more creative and to try to give words and portrayals of something we hadn't seen before. And that was difficult. Um, it was a very difficult book to write. Um, but because I was personally so needy for something like this to encourage me, um, it, it real I, I did the work. Um, so yes, it, it does feel, it, it feels to me more creative, more poetic whereas a lot of my stuff is just straight prose. And that's driven somewhat by grasping for ways to explain the subject matter. Correct. Essentially. Yeah. Right. Right. It's clear in the book that it's coming out of a, a deep sense of, of loss mm-hmm. and hard times, as you've mm-hmm. mentioned. And I know you go into that some in the book, but for those who haven't read it yet, um, want to let us into some of what was going on that led to desiring to write about this. During a, uh, about a two-year period, I personally went through a number of trials. Uh, the first one, 
It really wasn't that hurtful to me personally, but it really did affect my public persona. That was when I signed up to have a certain ministry act as an agent for me. And that ministry fell apart within six months of when I had signed up with them. But, you know, that was troubling, but it wasn't that troubling. And then a few months after that, a man who had been my pastor and whom I had loved deeply, dearly, uh, had to resign from ministry. And uh, that was a shock. If you would have asked me, Uh, who in the church might do something like this. Uh, This person would have been at the very bottom of my list. That has an impact on my life pretty much daily now, as I continue to attend the church where he was. Uh, That was immensely disappointing and heartbreaking to me, uh, just to have my, my lead pastor have to step down. And then, not long after that, a few months after that, I was involved, uh, another ministry that I was involved with uh, also had to step down out of ministry um, because of moral failure. And then, (laughs) uh, and then not a few months after that, a man who had really functioned as my father uh, during my life, he was actually my uncle, but he, he functioned as my dad, uh, he died. So it was a, it, it, it was a series of traumatic events that made me feel, well, first of all, made me feel things that I already knew, like this isn't my home mm-hmm. and things here aren't right. I mean, I've known that all along, Mm -hmm. Um, but I never knew it like I knew it this past couple of years. And I began to feel something in my heart that was, it was a sadness and yes, a sadness and a disillusionment, but it was also a desire for something more. Uh, it it's it was a getting up every day and saying things ought to not be like this. The world I want to live in is not a world like this. And then to discover that, yes, in fact, this isn't the world that I'm longing for. And then to put a name to that, to put a name to that feeling and the name to the feeling was homesickness. So then every time I would face another situation and I would feel this sadness and desire to be at a place where righteousness dwells, where things are as they ought to be, uh, I, I realized that what that was was actually homesickness and that this was something that I was not the only person who had ever felt. I mean, Paul said, uh, I, <laughs> I long to be with Christ. It's very much better it's very much better. Um, so what was he feeling there? Mm-hmm. You know, he was feeling that homesickness. And uh, certainly, in a sense, Jesus was feeling that homesickness too. You know, you've got John 14, where Jesus is talking about, you know, um, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And actually, you should be happy for me because I get to go back to my father. Well, okay. So there's this I want to say that it's like a godly discontent. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we feel like it's ungodly to be 
discontented, but then there's a godly discontent. You bring that up in your book of if, you know, if someone is speaking of heaven too much or how much they long to be with the Lord, that we might start to be concerned about them spiritually, like what's wrong with you? (laughs) And, uh, and you're pushing back on that a little bit in it. Um, why do you think that is that sometimes that makes us uncomfortable if people long for heaven so much? Well, right. You know, I think that people are, we're always afraid. Well, first of all, I think that people are afraid that we're being discontented and we're supposed to be contented. So on one hand, you know, you got Paul and he says, I've learned to be content in every situation I'm in. And that's a good thing. And on the other hand, he basically says, I can't wait to get out of here. So what is it? Well, it's both and. You know, he's very anxious to leave here and be with the Lord, although he says, if I stay on, it's profitable work ministry for you. So that's better. But I actually want to be with the Lord more. So I think we're uncomfortable. I think in America, we're just generally uncomfortable with talking about the fact that people die. Nobody wants to use that word. Mm -hmm. Phil and I watch Antiques Roadshow (laughs) because we're old and we can. And, um, on Antiques Roadshow, when people are giving the provenance of whatever it is that they've brought in, they'll talk about old granny so-and-so, and and this was her picture. Nobody says the word die. Everybody from the appraisers to the people who are there, nobody says the word die. It's as though it's the word you can't say anymore. Well, so people are uncomfortable. If you're going to talk about wanting to die Mm -hmm. and go to heaven, then they think that maybe you need to take meds or something. You know, you need some, you need some counseling. Uh, actually, I think it's, it's appropriate for us to say, yes, I want to be content and joyous here, but this isn't it. And it's much better for me to be there. Hmm. And again, I think we're very, very uncomfortable with mortality and just with saying that people die. Yeah. Yeah, the longing for heaven implies death or a, at least a radical change to our existence, like if right. the Lord returns. But right. it's, it's basically saying being done with the way things are now, and often that includes uh, our physical life, this side of glory. Um, and so, yeah, that can be an uncomfortable thing. I, I love how you speak of the both and and, and hold out that um, it doesn't mean we're discontented here. What are some of the misconceptions that you see that people have about heaven that you seek to address? Yes. Well, I think that there, you know, first of all, I don't think that many Christians are really that excited about heaven. I mean, if you say to them, are you excited about going to heaven? They'll all go, yeah, I really am. But then if you scratch that surface at all and you say, what will heaven be like? Well, what you kind of get is, um, well, we get to worship Jesus. Okay, yes, and that's lovely, and we can talk about that. Um, But really, is that it? And do you really want to be in a millennial-long worship service? Um, I mean, worship services are lovely, and I love them, but... mm. (laughs) We're saying that, and then we're having trouble showing up to church each week, too, which is kind of interesting. Yes, exactly. Thank you. later in the book. Yes, yes. And then, of course, there's this sort of idea that it's going to be such a change that we'll become kind of like angels. 
you know, we'll grow wings or we'll become invisible and we'll float around on a cloud. Sort I cannot of. wait to ride a cloud. So don't <laughs> tell me that's not going to happen. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's going to be this sort of floating around on a cloud and playing a harp with see-through fingers. Well, you know, I'm a physical being. And the thought of being a non-physical being is, um, well, not only is it non-Christian, it's just so foreign. The problem, of course, is that the church as a whole has bought into Greek philosophy, which basically would say that the material world, our physical bodies, the material world is evil, and the immaterial world is what's good. So what would be good about dying is that you leave the material world. Well, that's not at all a Christian construct. It's more like Hinduism or something. So, um, and it certainly comes out of Greek philosophy. Jesus was very physical. <laughs> and, you know, after the resurrection, it's interesting, you know, the things that the writers of the New Testament choose to put in of course, under the uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, Jesus shows up, Jesus shows up in a room full of scared disciples after the resurrection. And he says, do you have anything here to eat? Now, what, why, why is that there? That's there so that we know that he's not a ghost. That resurrection life is not non-physical not immaterial. It's very material. So one of the problems that we have when we think about heaven is that we sort of think about it as being immaterial, although there is the intermediate state, which sort of messes up everybody's thinking, but we'll talk about that. But where we're going to spend eternity is going to be far more physical than even we could imagine right now. This is going to be like a shadow compared to how material that world and physical, beautifully physical, that world's going to be. So the intermediate state, you know, when people say, where is Grammy? Um, what people basically don't understand is that there is sort of a, what Jesus called paradise. And you remember when he's on the cross and talking to the um, thief, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So what is paradise? That word there just basically means a beautiful walled garden. And so if you and I die before the return of Christ, um, we will go to a beautiful walled garden, a paradise where we will wait. We will have sentience, we'll be conscious, uh, and we will wait, but not, can you imagine waiting, but not being impatient? You know, like <laughs> waiting and being very um, content in the waiting, just perfectly joyous and happy, uh, wrapped in the arms of Jesus until he returns, at which point our bodies will be resurrected and this whole world will be resurrected. It seems like a lot of Christian ideas about heaven are more of this intermediate state, which is more, it's the anomaly in the redemptive story. It's a disembodied existence that's just unknown in creation and unknown in a sense in the final state. And yet that's become what we often associate things with. And so no wonder we kind of don't like that idea. Right. It's so, it's so strange, you know? Well, right. 
I, I don't think many Christians really understand that that's just an intermediate mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. It's not the final resting place. And somehow in God's providence, he's able to work that out in a way that it's not an agonizing. It's a, it's a great existence. It's paradise. Yes. But yet the fulfillment is still to come yes. of this body and soul that's glorified. Yes. And then new heavens and new earth, right? Which you emphasize the physicality of that as yes. well. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a great corrective there. Um, yeah, that leads me to... You talk in your book about the the earthiness, essentially, of heaven, the physicality of it. Why do you think that's helpful to understand as believers? What does that do for us? Well, first of all, of course, because it's something we're familiar with. So the world that we're going to is not going to be so different that we won't know a mountain when we see it. Uh, we won't know what those things are. It will be a very, very much better, um, very much bigger, very much stronger, very much more solid. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful uh, description when he talks about uh, of the difference between the world in which we live and the world that is to come. And he talks about how, let's imagine that there is a woman who's been put into a prison and uh, she's pregnant. She has her baby in the prison. And the only thing that, only way that they know that there is a world outside is a very, very high window that they get light through, but they can't actually see through. But she's also an artist and they've given her paper and pencil. And so she makes drawings for her son to try to show him what that world outside is like. But then she's shocked to find out that she, that he thinks that everything outside is different in that it doesn't all have an outline around it. And he thinks that that means it's going to be less physical than that outlined thing. And she says, oh no, by far, it's far more physical. All you're seeing here is just a shadow. It's like that. So for instance, with your resurrected body, I like to walk at a park that's near here in Escondido. And the park is filled with eucalyptus trees. And here's these beautiful tall trees, maybe 30, 50 feet tall. And all around the ground at the bottom of the tree are these eucalyptus seed pods. Now, eucalyptus seed pod is a really strange looking thing. It's kind of dark brown and it's round and crusty and it has this sort of funny X at the top of it. You would never in a million years look at that seed pod and say, from that seed pod grows that tree. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. Jesus is going to plant our bodies in the earth and from the earth, we will take our DNA but they're going to be so much more than they are right now. So I'm going to be so much more Elise, and you're going to be so much more Craig, fully Craig, Mm -hmm. fully Elise, without the fallenness of not only um, our sin nature, but also just the fallenness of our bodies, completely whole and joyous and holy, and you're going to just love everybody you see. It's an amazing thought. 
Yeah. <laughs> there's there's so much more that you cover in here of exploring different facets of of how to think rightly about heaven from the biblical um, passages that we have and just exploring those ideas. In relation to this podcast, it's it's focused a lot on people who are seeking to help others who are struggling. Yeah. And one of the things for me, what's amazing about this book is it's it's one of the most delightful and also it's also one of the saddest in some ways. There's there's deep suffering. There's the testimony to these longings that we have for something more. And those things are woven together throughout. How do we, as those who are seeking to help the suffering, the struggling, how do we comfort them with heaven without being trite? How do we use this doctrine to really care for people? Yeah. And, and that's a really great question. Um, I think one of the things that we need to do with suffering people is let them express their suffering and then sit with them and not try to fix them. But let's say then that we have opportunity to say something. Um, I think that one of the things that's most helpful is to realize that the suffering that we do here and the work that we do in the midst of our suffering isn't all going to get driven off a cliff at the end of the age, but that there is nothing that happens that we go through here that's in vain. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. You know, that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is just, you could spend your entire life trying to understand what he's talking about there. And it's all about the resurrection. But then he ends this beautiful passage on the resurrection and says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, what does that mean? What that means is that somehow the suffering that I do for Christ and the work that I do in the midst of my suffering, that's not all going to just sort of come to an end at the end of the age and just get exploded and disappear. Somehow God is going to take that work and beautify the world to come. I'm going to give you an example. Here in San Diego, we have Petco Park. And at Petco Park, there's a place that they, they have like all these commemoration bricks. It's a, like a commemorative plaza at Petco Park. And so when they were building the baseball stadium, my kids got together and bought a brick. And on the brick, it says world's best padre. And that's about Phil. And they had the brick put in the commemorative plaza. So did the stadium need Phil's brick? No. But when we see it, it makes us rejoice in the love that was behind it. So does God need our good works and even our suffering the things that we go through, does he need that to build the new earth? No, but it's going to be beautified all over. And you're going to, you, you'll see something in the new earth and you'll say, oh, that's, that came from this act of love or this act of faithfulness. And of course, all of us are going to be clothed in white linen, which the Bible says are the righteous acts of the saints. Well, so sometimes like you feel like, okay, well, I do my acts, I do my good deeds, and that's how I'm clothed. But actually, I think what that means is that all of our actions 
all of our good actions in the midst of our suffering in particular are going to clothe all of our brothers and sisters forever. So, and then of course to remember, and this sounds so trite, but it honestly is the only answer. This is not it. Um, You know, Abraham knew that he was journeying to a different city, one who, whose builder and maker was God. And to understand that, yes, there may be years of intense suffering here, but this is the only suffering there's going to be. And there will come a time when all that is old is made new. And so even Job, in the midst of his horrific suffering, he finally begins to turn a corner when he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him with my own eyes in my flesh. So there will come a time when all that we long for is made real and our sight will be made whole. And, you know, those things that we hope for, our faith will be made sight. Um, And aside from that, I mean, what else do we have? Just to know this isn't all there is. You share testimonials in the book. Um, Some people speak of how they've gone through intense situations in this life and how heaven is comforting to them. It seems a connection that you make in the book as well as, and it's in the subtitle, it, it Heaven, heaven and the new earth satisfy our deepest longings. So coming to see these longings that we have and not just gazing upon the emptiness of them, but seeing beyond that to what they're depicting right. um, in the consummation. And so reorienting ourselves to look beyond the fallenness and the brokenness. It seems like that's some of the journey you were going on in the mm-hmm. writing of this book. Mm-hmm. How How did these difficulties. And and in your particular experience, it's interesting as you're retelling that, how focused they were upon the church and upon yes. faith. Like it wasn't yes. all just um, physical suffering in the world, which, you know, we're exposed to, but yours poignantly within the church, what is God doing and what am I longing for beyond that? Yes. So longing for a place where you can be with a million other people and nobody's going to disappoint you. What? Really? Every relationship, every relationship, whole and satisfying. I love how you speak of interacting with those people and not even having to censor yourself, you know, and uh, not having to give a mental energy to restraining sinful impulses. (laughs) It's just mind boggling to think of um, the delights that await us. One of the things, just as we bring this to a close, is thinking through how heaven affects our worship now. You talk about it as the thin places. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about how heaven will shape how we view the church now? Right. So, well, first of all, you know, um, part of what's going to be happening on the new earth is we're going to be revisiting the creation ordinances. Uh, you know, we're going not just to be worshiping, but we're going to be learning and growing and planting and building and who knows what. Um, and so maybe we'll go take a class with C.S. Lewis or something. Hey, who knows? It'll be great. But um, not only, but in the in the creation ordinances, there is no command to worship because they didn't have to be commanded to worship because everything they did was worship. 
So, you know, they can look at a mountain and say, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Thank you, God, that's gorgeous. So worship becomes part of that. Then, so where can we see that now? Well, what we have now is places that I, I want to call them thin places, places where maybe you're in a song service and, and all of a sudden it just becomes so beautiful and you feel so near to actually the Lord in the middle of it. Or, you know, maybe you're sitting around with friends and praying for each other. And then all of a sudden there's a presence there. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm being weird, but I, you know, there's this, there's a, there's a knowledge. I know there's something more going on here, or you're listening to the preached word. And all of a sudden it's like the Lord is talking to you. Those are thin places. And those are the things that we want to, um, spend time in now. Uh, I, I want to go to church on Sunday because I know that's where Jesus is going to speak to me and, and the worship is going to draw my heart up into, uh, heaven. And, um, and those are beautiful, thin places, uh, places where just having fellowship with brothers and sisters and saying, oh, you know, that that was really wonderful. It was, we talk about it. We say it was heavenly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah. thin place. And so this, this longing for heaven doesn't pull us out of the world and it doesn't pull us away from the church. Instead, it helps us see these things rightly, it seems, is what you're Absolutely. seeking to get at in Absolutely. the book. And- so church is like the foyer to heaven, right? So uh, I want to be there. I want to be as close to it as I possibly can. And one of the things, you know, Packer talks about is having your capacity stretched. And I know that being at church is something that stretches my capacity, stretches my capacity for worship, stretches my capacity to understand Christ, and stretches my capacity to love people. And um, so I... Thoughts of heaven shouldn't draw me away from the church. It should draw me towards her. And then as imperfect as it is, it's still a foretaste of one day, the dwelling together uh, forever and Mm -hmm. with those same people. That's Mm -hmm. an incredible thing. And Paul can say that you, you Thessalonians, you are my joy and crown. You are what will be part of the reward of what I receive in being in the presence of God with him as our God and with us together as his people. Well, Elise, thanks so much for journeying through this yourself um, and and wrestling to write these things and put words to thoughts that are beyond us for us to seek to use our sanctified imaginations to picture what is to come. I really appreciate it and am excited for how it's going to help us all as believers to live better in light of what is to come. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Craig. You've been listening to the Karen Discipleship Podcast, and uh, we thank you for listening, and we look forward to being with you next time. Mm